This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can now make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about. Just click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to share what you're learning beyond the studio, please consider submitting to our listener spotlight to be featured on our social media channels. It's also the best way to pitch yourself to be a guest on the show. Just follow the link in our show notes or on the contact page of our website, beyondthe.studio. And uh, thanks for listening. Well, Maria Brito almost needs no introduction. She's a renowned New York-based contemporary art advisor, author, and curator, a Harvard graduate, originally from Venezuela. She's built her seven-figure art advisory and consulting business after quitting a terrible job as a corporate attorney 13 years ago. She's worked with more than 450 contemporary artists in many different capacities, including Banksy and Ai Weiwei, while at the same time having worked with clients ranging from Sean Diddy Combs to Gwyneth Paltrow, dozens of Fortune 500 C-suite executives, Broadway producers, and more. She's been featured in numerous publications and um, authored several books already, but today we're really talking about Maria's upcoming book, How Creativity Rules the World, The Art and Business of Turning Your Ideas into Gold, which is coming out through HarperCollins this spring. And How Creativity Rules the World helps artists, leaders, and entrepreneurs access the power of their creativity to disrupt the status quo and profit from their ideas. So we're really excited to talk with Maria about her own journey and her book. And thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Studio. I am so honored and thrilled to be here with the two of you because you have an amazing podcast and an amazing audience. And so I think that we are all here speaking the same language and I don't really have to use a lot of translations like (laughs) in other places where I have to actually explain what I'm talking about. So thank you for this opportunity and I'm thrilled to dive in. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for being here. Um, We started talking a little bit before we hit record. So I just want to back it up so we don't miss what we were saying. But uh, you were saying how, you know, we were you were hoping that with the book, we would find that in our parallels of interviewing artists, we would find parallel takeaways as well. And that was like one of the first things I wrote to bring up is like, we're so happy to have you on because we all clearly believe in the importance of sharing artist stories and really listening to artist stories of all disciplines of all times and really reflecting on how we can learn from them and, and also be open to our, our own creativity and inventiveness. So we're so excited to have you on. Yay! Thank you again. I mean, I think that's a really beautiful way of introducing this work. But also what I love um, about artists is that not every artist sees himself, herself, themselves as 
entrepreneurs, but the truth is you guys are, right? And the parallels also between entrepreneurs and, uh, and an artist are so palpable and clear. In fact, the creative process for one or the other is pretty much the same. It's just that the end product is very different in a way. But I, I think that the more kind of like an artist see himself, herself or themselves in different spaces, right? The, the more expansive your practice can be and the more things you can achieve because artists really are dreamer, dreamers and visionaries. And I see no reason why they should circumscribe their, themselves to this idea of like, we're artists and that's it, right? Like artists can do anything. That's, that's the point, right? I mean, there are no boundaries. There are nothing that is constrained by the rules of reality. And that's what I love so much about artists. And I have learned so much about artists for my business, really, because everything's possible, right? And uh, I, I like to live my life and, and to build my legacy and my business in a way where I think that everything is possible. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate how you are drawing all of these direct comparisons between artists and entrepreneurs and people from really drastically different sectors. And although you're citing artists as examples in many cases for where to source creativity, I think this is also an important read for artists because sometimes we forget how to apply creativity in one area of our life to another. And that's what I really feel like your book helps us to do. And in the beginning, you also make a point to differentiate between creativity and talent and instead describing creativity as a practice and a skill. And I wondered if you could um, also maybe just define how you think about creativity when you were writing this book. Sure. I think creativity is your unique ability to come up with ideas of value that are relevant, right? Because um, sometimes you come up with ideas of value that are way too ahead and, uh, and they might not really find an audience or, you know, a, and a positive response, let's say, although it's very rare that artists do that because the point of artists is always being ahead of the time. And they have to bring value, right? You have to be moved by a piece of art. You have to get education. You have to bring, um, you know, maybe a connection that wasn't forged before, opening paths for people to learn something. Talk about what's being left unsaid, which is one of the reasons why I love art so much is that some things that are so hard to talk about, the things that are taboo, the things that other people are afraid of saying out loud, artists have a license because it's art and because it comes from the soul and because it comes from their hands and this is how they are living in the moment. So yeah, I mean, creativity is that unique ability to come up with ideas of value, whatever form you have decided to express those ideas, whether it is a canvas, a sculpture, a book, or an invention, a car, you know, any of those things that make the world around you a better place. Yeah, I, I just also really appreciate your spirit of optimism and this belief that everything is possible. And I, I just couldn't help but feeling when reading your book what a gift this was to all of us in the midst of a collective crisis of coming through this pandemic to basically hand us all a guide on how to transform our circumstances using creativity into something really exceptional and how I also interpreted your book and, and you talked about this um, at the end is, is it being a sort of guide for how to navigate change, um, which is something we're also, you know, constantly in the midst of, but to do it with an attitude that is really hopeful and optimistic, um, which is something I think a lot of people have struggled with these last few years. And 
Um, you weave together a lot of your own story in this, and you're such a perfect example of these things. And I also want to get into your own personal journey and what led you up to writing this book. And so I wondered if you could share a little bit of your own story and how you've navigated big changes in your own life, um, particularly when you broke away from your old corporate job and decided to become an art advisor. Yes. Well, you know, I, I just want to make sure that people understand the difference between optimism and toxic positivity, right? Like the toxic positivity is like, yay, whoo, I'm amazing. Like the whole world is collapsing around. Whoo, yeah. No, it's not that, right? I think that optimism is always this kind of like, it's, it's, a, it's a trait and it's a skill that you build. It's not necessarily something that you're born with, but it's the desire to see the glass half full and also to think about that the future is going to be bring things that are better, right? I mean, it's people who say that the best is yet to come, right? That kind of thing, right? It's not like waking up every day and uh, just faking a state of mind because life is complicated at times, right? And by the same token, like being negative all the time and angry and you know because i didn't have this and because i didn't have that and because it, that is also not i mean there's really very little that can come out of that in the long term i mean i understand like faces are okay but if that is the the only face you know i mean i'm not sure how how interesting you will be in the long term you know for for you for yourself and for others right so you know, my life has been always, um, you know, surrounded by, by moments where, and, and a, a bunch of things have happened in my life that are miracles, honestly, because it, we're, I, I am a lot of things that were not meant to be, basically. And so when, uh, you know, I grew up in Venezuela and I wanted to be a singer and a performer. And that was really a talent that I had as a child. And I was as long as it was the school play, as long as it was that type of thing, my parents were cool with it because it was like, oh, she's so cute and talented. And the teachers were like, you know, she's really, really good at this. And when it became a little bit more serious and people started calling me for auditions and paid gigs and tours and whatnot, my parents said, that's a job for hookers. And um, we are not really going to support that at all. And, you know, I mean, living and growing up in Venezuela is very different from living and growing up in the United States where you said, okay, the hell with this. I'm going to go and wait tables and I'm going to make money because you do make money waiting tables actually. And I'm going to go and move in with my friend and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to end up doing my, my music career. That was not the, an option at all in Venezuela. So I got really brainwashed into the idea that to be successful and have a dependable career, you had to go to law school or you have to be a doctor or an engineer or something like super old school. And I, you know, I said, okay, look, um, there's really the, the best rebellion that I can really have here is for me to be so freaking good that I am going to be able to leave this country, which is, you know, a, a mess, just to put it mildly, right? And it, it was already a mess back when I was a child, and, you know, I mean, now it's like insane. So I, that was kind of like, my rebellion was like, how can I be so freaking good that I will have this, you know, exit. And I did. And so when I, when I went to Harvard Law, it was, you know, dreamy because it was like Harvard Law and it's fantastic and it's beautiful and it's like a postcard. Everything is, you know, it's really hard and it's a very demanding school and whatnot. But I had already done something which was to be able to leave that system that was, 
you know, from like, in, in my opinion, like I was three centuries ahead, right? In their way of thinking and, and doing things. And, um, but obviously I was, um, I was following a path that was not what I wanted to do. And uh, w once you graduate and whatever, and I moved to New York and I had to practice law because that was the path, I didn't question it too much. I had already been doing something and the natural next step was move to New York and practice corporate, which is what I wanted. And I did that for a long time because I just got numb and I was making a lot of money and I thought that, you know, my life had already been invested in, in that path. And uh, when I, um, well, I got married and I, I got pregnant with my first child. I started really, I had already been thinking this can't really last longer because I hate law firms and I hate being a lawyer. And when I got pregnant, I started questioning it even more because I said, well, I'm never going to be able to see my child again because I work, you know, 16 hours. And also, um, I'm, I need to model you know, his life, because children don't learn with books. Children learn out of like seeing their parents and, the, you know, their behaviors. And so I said to myself, what is this child going to learn, right? That I gave up on my dreams, that I hate my job, that I'm miserable all the time. This can't be. And that was obviously a very dark time in my life because I saw myself with no options. I didn't know what to do because once you had invested nine years of your life in a career, I mean, it was not just like going to school. I mean, if altogether were like 12 years, right? I said, okay, what am I gonna do with this? And I had uh, this, you know, passion for the arts because since I was an artist child also, my parents thought it was the best thing in the world for me to get very cultivated. So we were not rich, but all the money was like cultural, like literally, I didn't really have fancy clothes. And I think that's like an obsession I have with fashion right now is because I really didn't have any of those things when I was growing up, right? So like all the surplus was like, we're gonna go to the play, we're gonna go to the theater, we're gonna go to the ballet, we're gonna go to the museums, we're gonna go to the, or you know, or my parents like, okay, so go on a trip. Here's your trip to Europe, right? Like, whoo, bye. And I was like, wow, amazing. No, really, like that was great. But because they wanted to, they wanted to cultivate me. They wanted me to have what they didn't have. And, uh, uh, but, but that was like a hobby, right? Like, I mean, like, oh, my, my parents, potentially we're thinking, imagine that you're going to marry a guy and like, you're going to talk about art with that guy, right? Like, I mean, like you're going to find a boyfriend and <laughs> you have to talk about art with your boyfriend. So, um, so, but I had that burning desire, right? To utilize all the things that I had learned as a child and with my parents and grandparents in a way that gave me personal meaning and fulfillment in my life. And I saw that I had uh, recommended, because in my spare time as an attorney, I, I would, the, the, the golden, you know, the, the, the fantastic part of all this and the silver lining is that I, I lived in New York City, so I could go to all these galleries and museums. And I also, you know, I went to Art Basel and like, I saw two things. First of all, that I was able to recommend to friends, artists that had you know, they were emerging and then they would become famous. And that was pre-Instagram, pre-internet, pre, you know, like where everything is so easy to find nowadays. And the second thing is that I realized that there are people who were art advisors at the time had a very, very cold relationship with their clients. And it was very transactional. They would like, okay, so here it is, you pay me this, you pay me that, or, you know, next. And they didn't really care to explore 
like intersections of social media, for example, or blog, or because it was just a very, it was like a very insular world. And at the same time, I don't know, there's people, I think that they lacked imagination. I really call them the lawyers of the art world at the time because I was like, I should be doing that job and you should be at the law firm. Because I mean, honestly, <laughs> you are so boring. And, um, and I said, I can't do this better. I can't do this better because I have a passion, because I really like people, because I, you know, I can cultivate a relationship in a way that is just not necessarily just pay me a commission and uh, here's your art and buy, you know? And, uh, and I saw those blind spots were ripe for me, right? And, and that is actually what gave me success is not only that I was very good at choosing the artist, but I was also very warm and I wanted to curate the art collections inside of the homes and I wanted to hang things and I wanted to like move everything around. So I was like more kind of like staging the whole thing. And, and also I started using social media before anybody else was using social media. I had the Facebook page up, I had the Twitter thing, I was blogging and I was, I think that the, the amazing thing is that I was such an outsider that I had no fear of anything, right? So my little blog was horrendous. It was, it was, it was on Blogger. The pictures were tremendously bad. My writing was not as good as it is right now, but I was fearless. And I was like, I'm writing because first of all, I need to understand and make sense of the things that I am absorbing. And second, because I find these two very interesting. And third, because I feel that my audience, whatever it is, if it was three people or 3,000 at that time, I don't really remember how many people came to the blog, but the, the point was that I was doing something in service of others, but also I was learning while I was doing it. And when I started getting messages from the owners of the galleries and the artists, like, thank you for writing about me in such an accessible way, or thank you for coming to the gallery, taking pictures. And I was like, these people read an art forum. Why are they writing to me? Like, I mean, I was like, really? Like, you, you really liked it? And you, like, because it's just written in plain English for fifth grade. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it's not written art forum style. And they were like, no, no. And we want you to keep coming. <laughs> I was like, I... I said, okay, you know, um, yes, of course, I will keep coming. And that is how my whole social media adventure started and my whole kind of uh, content component, which is continues to be so important for my business in many different ways, started because I realized that nobody was doing it and that space was up for grabs and I went and I grabbed it. <laughs> Yeah, there's so much in your story that you I mean you talk about all of these things in your book from just listening to your intuition, the willingness to take risks, the kind of value of bringing this beginner's mind to a new field and being able to make unexpected connections that, you know, others that are so immersed in it might not be able to see. But I also can imagine that making that shift must have been incredibly scary and it take such a strong sense of self to feel like, you know, you're going to make this decision, but there is real risk involved. And, and I just wonder for 
artists that might be or you know anyone considering a life change um, where they feel like the stakes are sort of high and how how to make those pivots and um, you talk about ways to do this in your book but I, I, I just wonder how have you been able to kind of cultivate that sense of risk-taking or that ability to listen to your intuition and and know when you really need to make a change I think that artists you know, successful artists are risk takers too because they don't like to to settle in an area, right? I mean, let's like, for example, think about David Hurst, right? I mean, you know that he is highly controversial and he gets as much love as he gets hate, right? From people in and outside of the art world. And um, the, the why people have so many visceral reactions against him, it's because the men really just can't get away with anything, right? I mean, he wants to do an NFT and, uh, you know, he wants to sell uh, his, his works on paper and he decides who gets to, like, end up with at the end of the game, which was brilliant, more brilliant than anybody else, right? And uh, And then he, you know, has this incredible, you know, sculptures that are, you know, ridiculous at the same time and in the 500,000 bucks and whatever, and they are all sold out. And so, and, and why is that, you know, whether you call him that he's so tacky or that he is commercial or that he is not an artist, whatever it is, right? That the man has a quality that is this ability to take risks regardless of what the world outside of his, you know, immediate periphery is thinking. And I think that, you know, you cannot take chances like he does, for example, because you feel afraid or you are like already people know you for a particular style or a particular thing. I consider that if you are unhappy with what you're getting and if your soul is not satisfied with what you're doing, I don't see a reason why people should stay with the status quo and said, well, because people know me because I do this abstract paintings, let's say, right? And so I should keep doing this for the rest of my life. I think part of really being an artist is that ability to shift when you feel like you need to do it because what you were doing doesn't satisfy you anymore. And, you know, some, a, a girl, like a, a couple of weeks ago, a student at the Art Institute of Chicago actually told me, you know, being an artist is really hard, she said to me. And I said, well, being a dentist is hard and just as hard as it is to be an advisor. Just a, everything is really hard. It's not that just because, you, like, we have to stop with this myth of the starving artist and we have to stop the myth of, like, there has never been a better time, really, in the history of humanity to be an artist because now it's just not art physical. Now there are NFTs, now there are, you know, collaborations with brands, now there are, you know, there is always this desire that people want to connect with artists because they are great storytellers, because they bring different perspectives, because they is something that they make that you want. And I personally, as an art advisor who has had success in this business for this long, appreciate a lot a pivot in an artist because to me that speaks evolution. That is actually something that says you're not stagnant doing the same old tricks that the market has responded beautifully because they are commercially successful. But where is the growth? You know, I, 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 and, and this is of excellent artists and not so excellent artists, right? Like, I mean, there are artists who are excellent and they keep just, you know, milking the same thing over and over and over and over again because it, there is a lot of money to be made there. And that is 
obviously a a very important factor when you're you're actually deciding if you want to move in a direction or another. But there are other artists who potentially don't really necessarily have that level of economic success who are very willing to take chances on new ideas because it is actually what satisfies them. And so it's the market is not dictating what they have to do. It is their curiosity. It is, and, and one question you ask is like, how do you keep that alive? How do you keep that original mind? And, and I think that as long as you're alive and as long as things are happening around you, you're going to have an enormous well of inspiration and ideas happening at once, right? Because the world is always changing. Things around us are always changing, pandemic or not pandemic, that, you know, things are happening, right? And artists, I personally think art doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? I mean, art is a response to who you are and it's a response of who you are vis-a-vis -vis the world in any particular time. And it is about identity, it is about politics, it is about society, it is about a moment in time, your inspirations, your own history, your bringing, the place you were born. So to me personally, that is the art that moves me, is the one that does not happen in a vacuum. And so that means that the whole world, it is it's out there for you, the artist, right? To grab and say, how is this going to be integrated in what I do? Or you know, let me take a little clue from this or that and and see where it takes me, right? I mean, I like have seen artists who, you know, are amazing painters and they've decided to take on ceramics. And I have seen artists who are excellent at ceramics and they've decided to take painting. And I have seen artists who, you know, only do installations and then suddenly they say, let's do this like tiny group of little canvases because I feel I'm intimate right now, right? And so who is anybody to judge that? In fact, I think it's welcomed, right? It's welcomed, it is appreciated, it is, uh, it is a fresh, you know, take on, on an artist. And not every risk and not every different step that you take forward is going to pay off and say, oh, wow, you know, no, but Experimentation is really what allows artists to be, you know, relevant. Really, experimentation is important. Not not everything is going to always be right. There are series that are terrible, really. And, you know, I think most artists have that in their resumes, like, oh, gee, I mean, like, there, I did this body of work and it's horrific. And, you know, well, people bought it or it ended up in storage or whatever. I burned it, you know, I don't know. But I think that a lot of, I, I don't know many artists who haven't had those failures. And, uh, you know, there is always the beginning the messy middle happens to everybody, right? Like the mid-career, the curse of the mid-career artist, right? Like you don't know where you are anymore. You've done so many things. The beginning was hot and then suddenly you're in this middle that is so strange, right? And then it's like getting older and seeing and looking back, right? And having uh, all this experience and successes and failures. And, you know, it's great also to look back and say, well, if I want to recycle something from the past, now is the right time to do it, right? Because it's you can't you have the maturity to revisit things without being cynic or without, 
you know, censoring yourself and saying, oh gosh, um, there I go again, you know, with this old thing. No, because time has passed because now you have a different perspective because at some point that was your exciting thing to do and then, you know, you moved on because, you know, you evolved and then you're looking at it again with fresh eyes. And that is, I think, the beauty and the exciting thing of being an artist is that you can take so many different paths and, um, Censoring, it's something that, you know, censoring oneself is something that unfortunately kills so many amazing ideas and so many fantastic inventions, innovations in both the world of art and the world of business because people are so concerned about what is it that somebody's going to think about me. Most people are worried about themselves. That's the truth. Really, human beings are very self-centered. They are not that worried about with what you put outside. I mean, like, do it for you, right? Like, do it for you, but, you know, do it for you with an intention of creating something that is great. And, and we're never going to attain perfection. We already know that's impossible. We're always going for excellence. We're going for, you know, like... For, I think that it's important always to say, I can be better, I can be different, I can evolve. And that is actually the realm of an artist. Yeah, we're always talking about trying to focus less on like comparing our work to itself right now and being so focused on criticizing where we're at right now in our careers when like if we take on the identity of being an artist and like want to try to do this with our lives, it's, it's going to be a lifelong career and that's going to have so many different phases. And if the, you know, the nature of being an artist is to be inventive and creative and open to kind of trying new things, that can mean that you can go through a myriad of different career types and ways of producing work and, and they're all part of your journey and stuff may feel useless right now that you're creating and you're like well I guess I mean I definitely have boxes in my attic and basement and studio right now of work that I'm like I don't know what to do with this but it's not ready for anything right now I'll evaluate later and I think we probably yeah I'll definitely have those boxes and you should because that's where ideas come from later the everything that you have done and everything that you have learned and everything that you have stored in your brain, even if you don't remember it now, is there for a reason. And that's where ideas come from. And that is why it's so important to be here and now, you know, attuned to the present because, you know, three seconds later is going to be the past, right? But we want to be able to say that we have so much that has happened that we can find the answers to those, you know, solutions or, I mean, to the problems that we're constantly kind of trying to solve, right? I mean, like, how do I become better? What is my next big thing, right? It is all inside of you. And, and of course, in the world around you, obviously, because you have ac accumulated this incredible amount of experiences and, uh, you know, learning and, and the work that you have made and the things that have happened. So it's always kind of like, a symbiotic relationship you and the world and nothing ever goes to waste because you already made it even if you decide to discard the things that are in your attic and like the things that you don't know what to do with them anymore they already existed and they some somewhere inside of your body and your brain and your mind and your soul they are there imprinted somewhere and they are there to help you either decide that that's not what you want to do or think about how do you make it better or think about you know um, how do I incorporate this in the future in a way that it gives me, you know, a sense of 
accomplishment, a sense of that I did the best that I could. And that is kind of like the benchmark, right? It's like, it's not how can I be Picasso? It's like, how can I be the best that I can be with what I have? And with, and, and I think that we're so harsh usually measuring ourselves against other people and having all these kind of weird comparisons because of social media and whatever. And that is not very helpful, right? It's, it's just, I think the, the best way to compare your work if you want to do it is with your own. And, um, and even that, right? I mean, it's, it's a good thing to have a body of work that spans many um, decades or many years in your career, whatever it is where you are. But it's, it's excellent for reference, not to dwell, you know, too much on why or what or things like that. The point I think is to always have progress, even if those steps are very tiny, because the worst feeling is the feeling of stagnation, right? It's like nothing is happening and um, I don't feel I'm doing anything. And the only way to counteract that is by doing things, right? Yeah, I, I also like what you had to say about creativity being this endless resource, um, because I think underlying some of these questions that came up earlier, like, you know, how do we deal with the challenge of being an artist? And there's there's sort of this fear of the unknown. And I think you're just reminding us to trust in our own creative abilities and whether these changes are of our own doing, or it feels like there are changes happening to us or around us in the world. I think that reminder that we have the creative ability and skill set to be able to navigate through that um, is really important for for artists, but for anyone. And I think especially when trying to navigate through some of those larger questions or challenges of how to make a living in the world as an artist. And what you're also helping us do is really connect the dots. Um, between the creativity that artists bring to their practices and looking, you know, out and around and how to apply that to other aspects of their career. I think that the thing is that resources nowadays are free and everywhere, right? I mean, there used to be a time where you would have to go to like, you know, from one place to the other to actually be able to figure out what to do, right? I mean, um, marketing and differentiating yourselves are part of being creative as well, and they are very, very important, right? And so, and everything is kind of out in the world right now. There is nothing hidden. I've had like sometimes, and this is very cute, I'm not actually criticizing, but I've gotten messages from artists saying, you know, um, I don't want to put my work out on Instagram because I'm very shy and I, I feel the work is very sacred. And I said, well, I mean, and you, you have to choose between eating or that, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's so clear because how are, is anybody going to find you? I have friends who are big art dealers and they find artists on Instagram every day, every day. I'm not a dealer I, per se, right? Like I might not represent artists. I find them too. And if I love them, I will reach out or I will inquire. I do find artists on Instagram all the time, not to represent them, but to maybe recommend them to my clients or to buy them for myself. I don't know. I found many, but the thing is, the thing is, also, there are hang-ups, historical hang-ups, right? Like, oh, um, the word is so precious and it's so sacred. It just cannot live on social media because with that, you know, people make these ideas in their minds that they are, like, diminishing the work. And that is, again, like a hang-up from history, the way that things are being taught in art schools or whatever that make absolutely no sense with reality, right? Or 
uh, well, I'm so shy and, you know, it's, I'm an introvert and this and that. Well, we live in a world that actually requires a lot of different other skills, right? And, and thankfully, if you're doing it through a social media post, you don't have to be in front of an audience of 500 people who, you know, you're going to be terrified of like, oh, they're going to boo me or whatever, right? Like, it's just a freaking picture. If people say it's ugly, then you take it. I don't know. Like, you know, I mean, we yes, unfortunately, we're exposed to people's hate and like dramas and their own projections of who they are and this and that, right? But... Not everybody has the luxury to just be anonymous because at some point in their career early on, you know, they were, you know, they did their thesis and, uh, you know, Hauser and Worth came and offered them a million bucks. Like, I mean, not everybody has that luxury, right, of like saying, right. <laughs> I, got a, I got an amazing gallery from the get-go and they did all these promotions for me and they placed all my works in all the museums around the world and I will never have to market myself because I am shy, because I think the world out there sucks and because social media is horrific which are perfectly normal things that anybody can think about, social media or marketing, right? But because not everybody has the luxury of having a gallery to knock on your door and say, you focus on your work and we do all the marketing and you just have to be a private persona and don't worry about that. That doesn't work anymore, Yeah. <laughs> right? But by the same token, think about this. If all these artists who are using social media and getting found by Hauser and Worth and by Gagosia, and you know, because it's like, it's it's about the repetition of the imagery, right? Like if you start seeing something you love and you see it more and more, you want to inquire, what is that? And what is that? And what is that? And what is that? And then one day the thing shows up on the booth at our Basel. And this uh, is an artist who just started like, you know, showing things on social media and hustling, right? And so... Um, yes, marketing and putting yourself out there is scary, but it is also a creative skill, right? And how you differentiate yourself from the rest of the world and from the myriad of other artists who are out there doing the work of, you know, using hashtags and whatnot is uh, right now is, is part of how artists are being found in the world. And these resources, again, they didn't exist not too long ago, it was really like you would have to call, you would have to send submissions and like, you know, things that I am like, dude, but this is crazy that people would have to do those things, right? Like nowadays it's an email. Nowadays it's like, you know, look at me, I'm here, right? And some people get found faster. Some people take a long time. And some people honestly are not necessarily making what the world wants to see right now. And that is also something that you have to accept, whether it is to change a little bit the focus of what you're doing or consider different avenues. There are many, many ways to, like, you can be an artist showing in galleries. You can be another, an artist who's creating textiles for a company. You can be an artist who is licensing your work to brands. You can, there are so many ways that you can be an artist and make good money out of it. I have known so many people who have created brands out of their illustrations and they are making millions of bucks just because they had the desire to be inventive and innovative. And, you know, they were cartoonish, so they created dolls and they created T-shirts and then, you know, it grew and it was cute and it, there was wallpaper and then people in Spain called them. And so I've known so many stories like this. And then I've known the stories of the ones who say, I only want to show a Gagosian and nobody called and the people who called they didn't want <laughs> right so it's like 
How do you balance the realities of life with the demands of having to make, you know, a living and uh, the desire that you want to be also successful and satisfied? And I think that once you have chosen to be an artist, which is a big thing, right? I mean, like deciding that you want to be an artist professionally and pursue that as a career, it is a big thing because first of all, it's not traditional, right? It's not like, like it happened to me as advanced as it is the United States right now and everything. God forbid my child goes to art school because it's going to become one of those starving artists. It's what parents think, not knowing the enormous amount of possibilities that are out there in the world for artists and for people with this type of minds. Also, at the very beginning, we talked about talent and no talent, right? I know artists with no talent who have enormous studios, people who work for them, right? And and they sign the work and there's nothing wrong with that. You have to think this way, these guys or women or whatever, they are idea makers and they can translate those ideas onto canvases and products and things and that it doesn't really matter they don't have no talent i know other artists who actually are super talented and like they they can paint anything they can do anything and they just don't have the vision or the ideas right to market themselves to put the work out there differently to hustle differently to talk about the work in a way that is engaging. And I know that seems to be a lot to digest and a lot to ask, but I speak from experience of having worked with, yeah, more than 450 artists and have have crossed my paths with people ranging from illustrators to NFT, you know, purely digital artists to, you know, painters and conceptual artists, that the race is very long and that it depends on many different things that you have to be willing to do, that you have to be willing to do those things and, and to be honest with who you are, with what you do, with your aspirations, with, uh, you know, with, with what is it that is that you why, why to begin with you wanted to be an artist you know, and, and to also give up a little bit on those hangups from the 19th century about putting yourself out there, which are not doing anything good for anybody, the truth is. Yeah, well, it's so interesting how you seem to like cultivate this really like fu- future thinking mindset and so much of what um, you talk about has to do with expanding our own ideas around what our identity as an artist is and I, I think it's interesting that it, how easy it is to sort of f- like fall into that um, pattern of feeling like there are these predetermined paths or there's this one route. And I sometimes wonder where that uh, originates, if it's through some of these avenues like um, going to art school and then feeling like, you know, if I don't get represented by these certain galleries or like this is the, the way to be an artist. And I think, you know, so much of what you talk about and even the historical examples that you share of these artists that are now household names were very entrepreneurial. And so just to hear you talk about embracing new platforms and new technologies and um, embrace the fact that we are and can be more than one thing. And you're such an example of that, too. I mean, it might be straightforward to introduce you as an art advisor, but you're also an author and a TV show host and a lawyer, and your business is constantly evolving alongside you. And I think that's a great lesson for artists, too, to not confine themselves to 
either a discipline or an identity that they've created for themselves, or even to hold on too tightly to an idea of an expectation of how they thought their career was going to progress, um, but constantly be trying to think outside of that and to be creating new connections and creating their own pathway. And I think that's where that sort of I don't know, idea of moving into the unknown and navigating uncertainty and relying on our own creativity comes into play because it really is about trying to invent something that you haven't seen before. Yeah, and it's all about identity too, right? I mean, the unique ideas that come from you and the way, like there are no two identical human beings in the world. Even if you have an identical twin, you are going to have a lot of different feelings and sensations and outlooks and mindsets and learning and experiences and everything, right? And so the things that are so unique to you should be like, I quote Eric Parker in, in one of the chapters and Eric is a very dear friend of mine and an amazing artist. And he said something that was, it always resonates with me, which is an artist like him is making art to extend an invitation to people to enter his world. It's not an imposition. It, he doesn't have an agenda, right? It is, he's doing things that come from being alive in the now, from paying attention. He said, you know, my work in the 80s and 90s has really nothing to do with the work that I'm doing right now. And this is a guy who's had museum shows around the world. This is a guy who, you know, was represented by Mary Boone, was represented by Casman, right? Like, I, I mean, this is an artist who's serious about what he's doing. But he keeps evolving and he keeps his mind open. And if like a company that makes skateboards call him to do a collaboration, he will. If he can produce multiples and they sound fun to him, he will. If he can, you know, like there is no right or wrong. And there is always this kind of like the consistency of the work, you know, it's his, but it doesn't really look at all like it was at the beginning of his career and in the middle of his career it looks very different than probably what it's going to be many years down the line and the idea of that the invitation to your world it's something that i think artists should always have in mind it's an invitation it's not an imposition it's not an agenda it's it's very empathetic if you think about it right like because you want to do the work so people actually they don't have to like it they have to approach it a little bit so that you can imprint something in the minds and the hearts of, of those people who came a little, you know, forward and say, I want to look at that. That is like interesting. It's calling my attention. And, um, you know, I mean, there is also the rise of the self-taught artist, although Alison Zuckerman also corrected me on a few things so that like every artist is kind of self-taught if you were like a child who, you know, loved to paint and, you know, things like that, because it's something that is within and it's inside of you. I mean, it's very unusual. I don't really think that this happens and I didn't go to art school, but correct me, like you would find people in an art school program that had no inclination to be an artist, right? Like, I mean, like, oh, I woke up, like it happened to me that I had to do something because my parents thought that was the right thing to do. And listen, half or maybe more than all the people who graduate from law school end up doing something else, right? But an artist who's like showing up for art school and say, I didn't want to be this, you know, like I, I have no intention of doing this or I don't know how to draw or paint. That doesn't happen, right? I mean, 
So it's like this idea. Yeah, they're there and they're committed. <laughs> right? I mean, no, it's like, it's like you have a desire to do something because you are good at expressing your emotions and your feelings and your ideas in a particular medium, whatever it is, collage and painting and drawing and sculpture and ceramics. I don't know what, right? And um, where I was going with this is that, you know, uh, being an artist is not that hard it's not that easy but there are many ways like we said before that you can put what you're doing out in the world and and you also have to be very honest seriously you have to be honest with what you're making and why you're making it and uh the rise of the self-taught artist is what i was talking about before that is also an, an, an excellent example right that you don't have to really go to art school if you're an amazing you know, if you can express your ideas amazingly and put them out. Because the majority of this self-taught artists who didn't go to a fancy art school or any art school, for that matter, are being found on the internet. And they are not asked, nobody's asking them and like, can I see your report card or like your grades from your MFA? Like, and nobody's asking that, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, there, there are paths to success. And they are out there in the world. Once another boy told me, nobody wants me because I didn't have an MFA. And I just, you know, I mean, look, again, I can't, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist to take people out of their hangoffs and their negativities. I mean, that's not really what my job is. And, but I can see how a lot of people stand on the way of their own success by believing certain things that are irrelevant at this point, are totally irrelevant. I mean, you can have a guy like Beeple who sold his NFT for 69 million bucks at Christie's, right? And like, this is a guy who is navigating happily. Now, the world of fight arts, even though he has no clue, he has said, I have no clue what, what anything is in the art world. And he's also happily navigating the world of NFTs and the metaverse, right? And I think that successful artists are always the ones who are willing to look outside of their own selves, right? Like, I mean, they look inside, obviously, but they are also looking around. They are looking at what's happening and they are curious about why things are happening, whether it is socially, racially, culturally, uh, whether it is, you know, politics, elections, whatever, whatever it is that your curiosity is, is taking you. And there's got to be things that are, uh, you know, of your interest that are not just what you are doing at any given time. And that is what the patterns that I have seen in successful artists repeat time and time again, is their willingness to explore all these intersections and the margins and the, the things that people are not talking about or the, you know, whatever movement they find fascinating that at any given time can be underground. And then, you know, that's how everything starts. It's all underground and weird and like ugly, and then it becomes a thing, right? So I, I encourage people to, you know, to look outside and to, and to follow their instincts because artists are really, really good at, at intuition because they spend so much time in their heads and alone too, right? Like silence is so important. It's like one of the most important things for an artist is to have time to think 
and to be alone with your ideas. So artists have a very fine intuition that a lot of people don't because they are surrounded by distractions and nervous systems and things like that. So pay attention to what your signals are telling you to go and explore and go with them. I mean, that is the beauty of being an artist is that you can take those strange paths just because you had a hunch. And if you follow the hunch, it's probably for a reason and it might bring amazing things and, and new perspectives to your work that you did not consider before had you not followed that hunch. Yeah, and I mean, there's no one way to be an artist. It's what you're saying. I think that's also important for us to represent on the podcast that there's no one way to build a creative career. And the idea is to share stories to help expand artists' ideas of what is possible. And to I think what you do in your book so well, too, is encourage artists to look within themselves and recognize the the skill sets, the interests that they have, and then create a path forward for how to connect these dots in their lives. And something you also just mentioned, too, that I, I also wanted to make sure to talk about are some of these um, strategies for cultivating this sense of creativity. And you said something um, in your book along the lines of a brain being oversaturated, having no room for innovation. And you obviously dive into this in much greater detail in, in your book, but I wondered if you could talk about some of those practices that artists can cultivate in order to hone that sense of intuition or to you know listen to that voice inside of them to develop creative ideas. Um, because I was really struck by how uh, small some of these can seem, like daily writing or um, just sitting in silence and um, wondered if you could just talk about some of those practices. Yeah, you know, I think that the, the what I was just saying before, it's one of the things that actually call my attention the most is that when I started visiting artist studio, and I have been to so many, is that there is always this sense of calm, right? Even if it's a mess, right? Even if it's a mess and it's all dirty and whatever, it's very calm and maybe in some instances there is a little bit of like background music but for the most part people are concentrated and silent and which is very different than going to a trading floor for example or you know to one of those co-working spaces that are like discotheques literally like everybody's like dancing to, like yeah i mean every time i go to one of those places i'm like am i in like a working space or a nightclub so um I think that, you know, one of the examples that I give in the book that I actually love is the story of Georgia O'Keeffe and how she was always silent, right? And even her husband said and described her as robust and silent and intense because she was like, everything was poking through her eyes. I mean, I would not imagine what it is to be standing in front of Georgia O'Keeffe, but, you know, she really protected her silence um, and her solitude fiercely. And that doesn't mean you have to be alone. I mean, like people tend to think in extremes. I hate that, right? Like, ah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> of course not. But, you know, you um, can spend 10 minutes a day just being with yourself. And I don't think this is difficult for any artist, right? Like to spend 10 minutes in silence thinking about nothing or just like people sometimes are very nervous. And I understand we've been through two of the most difficult years in human history. There is, of course, a lot of anxiety surrounding us, but anxiety doesn't go away just if you think more of the anxiety, 
like if you know what I'm saying, like, you know, the more you think oh, about, yes. like it doesn't get any better, right? Like it's when people are like, so you know, this, the, the story of the entrepreneur or whatever, who's so burnt out that the only solution they have for their burnout is to do more work. You, have you ever heard of that? Okay, so it's the same thing. Like anxiety doesn't go away by you thinking about the problems. You know, it's, it's just, <laughs> I feel it's like just, we all live it. It just does not really. Like if anybody has done that, I'm sure they are thinking about it this second. And because uh, it just doesn't, right? So in um, actually in, in the history of people putting together in a way, scientifically, the steps to creativity, right? Which is not how I approach that in my book at all, but this, because I have learned and read for 13 years so much literature about being creative in every field, there are the steps of being creative and coming up with amazing ideas, right? And so the first step is gather as much, I mean, first you have to have a passion of the topics you want to tackle and whatever it is that you do, right? It is your work or as a, as a you know, as, as a painter, or it is like your work running a business or a fashion designer. So you tackle, let's say you're a fashion designer and you just are inspired by the 1920s. So you go and you gather all the pictures and all the, you know, uh, clips online and whatever, and you go and you buy the books on Amazon and you look at you know the fabrics and that's step one right and step two is sort of like okay let me just separate myself a little bit from this and and kind of like put it on the side and I'm just going to distract myself with cooking or with like other parts of my business you know whatever it is right and then there is the incubation effect which is when you're not really doing much about anything that you get this aha moment, right? But you need this incubation effect. And the, and the fourth step and fifth step are usually like, according to this, you know, this five steps of creativity that I am explaining right now, the fifth, fourth and fifth step is like gathering feedback from friends and acquaintances and whatever. It, that all depends on where you are in your life and what kind of job you do. But the incubation effect is like, I got it, right? Like. The aha moment when you were not doing anything, when your brain had a moment to rest and like, it's like, wow, I actually got it. So many people get answers to their questions when they are taking a shower because they are not doing anything else, right? I mean, it's just, you have to be there, right? And um, you can do the same by scheduling those 10 minutes of doing nothing every day, right? I mean, people, if you want to put labels like meditation, that's fine, but I don't want to have to put people, you know, under pressure by saying, and you have to meditate every day. People feel very scared about those things when, when they consider that they have to be in a grotto with like incense and, you know, like lotus position. It, it's a lot of pressure for people to actually see themselves doing that. And if you just say, well, you know, 10 minutes before lunch, I'm going to put an alarm and every day. And that means I have to spend 10 minutes in silence, perhaps eyes closed, right? And just be no internet, no, you know, looking at the computer, no sounds on the background, nothing, just close your eyes and be, I guarantee that can bring, you know, incredible breakthroughs to your life. And, and the part of journaling also is so important. The examples I, I gave in the book have like a different intention. It's more about uncovering ideas the way that Da Vinci did and the way that Picasso did, right? But you also had like the silent journalists or like the people who actually like the journal, like, like, like 
I don't know, Louis Bourgeois, for example, who, you know, she had, she had all these diaries, like one was for drawings and one was for ideas and the other one was about, you know, whatever it is. So I think that um, that's also something that puts you in a position of mindfulness. Because when you pick up a pen and you actually have a piece of paper in front of you, for the most part, you're not doing anything else, right? I mean, if you are making sense of what you're doing. So that is also something that you can, if you can't stop and think, you can actually, I think it's easier for certain people to be in the action of journaling. And it's like stream of consciousness, put everything out, no matter what it is that you're thinking without censoring yourself, because it's almost like emptying the mind, right? Which is also kind of the purpose of being in silence and, and meditating. And I think that people really underestimate how important these things are, how easy and cheap and available they are, because we tend to believe that if it's complicated and it is weird and it's a lot of steps, it's going to give us a lot more return. And the going back to the basics is usually where, you know, everything sort of happens, right? And if you think about it, that's why beginner's luck happens because people don't know, you know, all the pitfalls or all the things that, you know, the experts know, right? And that's why disruptors are usually people who come from the outside and not the inside of industries, like, because they don't have this preconceived notions of what could be or that or or no 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 don't do that right and so that's why I am against of complexity and I'm against of like things that are full of adornments but they really are just empty right I mean if you think about it so processes and 50 million steps I think that what I'm proposing in this book is very easy and it's digestible and it, but it takes work and commitment and uh and it's a daily you know it's a daily practice to to build things of meaning and it's like the same thing as going to the gym if you go once a month you're not gonna see results if you go every day first month you're gonna see something great maybe two months is gonna be much better three months you're like oh but look at that right i mean and uh, and, and it's the same thing with having ideas and breakthroughs and actually what i also um, advocate in my book is that ideas are fantastic, but if you don't materialize them, it's like, it's like they never happened. Right. I mean, it, it, it's like, you have to also choose which ones you want to pursue with conviction. And as I said at the beginning, not every idea is going to turn into a hit and that is okay. Not every actor that has already won the Oscar will win it 50 times, right? I mean, we know that. And uh, not every painting is going to be in the permanent collection of the Met, right? And, and that is part of, you know, doing the work. You're not going to be the hottest thing all the time, but you can be the hottest thing at many different times of your career, and you can produce work that is meaningful, amazing, right? And like, it's not always going to everything be amazing. I, I, I have a friend who's an incredible artist. I'm not gonna say his name, but he is, um, he had a show about nine years ago in, a, in an important gallery in New York. And it was, 
really criticized so badly by the critics, right? It, it was like, it was spiteful, the review he got. And I actually couldn't believe that that had been printed. And he was very disappointed. And, um, you know, for a long time, he was kind of like figuring himself out. It was not that he didn't have money. It was like, it's not that the gallery was upset with him or anything. It's that for him, having such a horrible review showed him that at that time, at that moment, the work really was not that great. That's the truth. It, 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 the, the review was very mean, but the work was not great. And for a long time, he didn't put anything out. He decided to like be with himself and he decided to spend time with his family. He was working, but he lost a lot of his confidence. And uh, like after that, when he came with his new work, it was so incredible. It was so human and colorful and relatable. And, and it was about his experiences growing up and his grandparents and his background. And, um, you know, like last week it was announced that he's now working with one of the biggest galleries. I mean, he was with an excellent guy. Now he's like with one of the top two in the world. And I felt so happy in my heart for him because I knew that he was already moving in the right direction and that he was having this phenomenal, incredible moment and that his, his work was really representing what it is inside his soul. But at that time, I remember that show, obviously, because it had been such a blow in his confidence and... You know, I think part of it, he was trying to find himself. That's the truth. He was trying to find himself. And he thought that by being a little bit more conceptual and a little bit weird and a little bit like nobody understands, he was actually going to hit the nail of like the fancy, you know, the critics. And actually he, he hit like the critic the wrong way. You know what I mean? So <laughs> you are not always going to have the Oscar winning work. And I think that you have to be cool with that. And that is part of like experimenting, failing. I, I, I you know, put in my, in my book, the story of uh, Marcel Duchamp coming to the United States after his work had been like, that was worse than anything. That was so crazy that even um, Teddy Roosevelt had written about it. It was like, he yeah. went to the Armory show and he saw it and it was like, what the F is this? What is this work? I mean, everybody made fun of uh, descending, you know, descending women or woman number two because nobody understood that a woman could be portrayed as this cubist and abstract, you know, forms that were geometric. And uh, that actually was the beginning of modernism for, you know, many of the historians and, and people who like to put categories on things. And uh, it, it opened the door for Marcel Duchamp to move from Paris to New York. And when he moved to New York, everybody knew him already because the painting had been such a parody, right? Like everybody was like, we love him. He's totally, you know, it's totally crazy. This man went with this crazy thing. And, um, and you have to really, and at the time it was a failure, right? I mean, like he was hurt it's not that he was crying, but he was hurt because he had 
brought it to the salon in Paris and people made fun of him and he withdrew the painting and then he actually gave it to his brothers who had a gallery and the painting got no love and then the dealer went to his studio and said I want to bring it to New York I am fascinated with what you do and he was like okay well great the painting sold but the Americans who were much more open-minded than the Europeans did not show any love to that painting right and that thing is that Failures and moments like that are just something that we, as humans in society, we we give value judgments, right? Like, and we say, well, this is a failure because, or this is a success because, and that's just temporary, right? We don't really know how things are going to pan out in the future. We don't ever know how things are going to be assessed or evaluate by others or by history and sometimes you know you have amazing commercial successes and they are flops in you know a critical world if the critical world matters or not I don't think it does but again being an artist still so rooted in the 19th century which I find fascinating that we have the most incredible visionaries in the art world as artists and the whole education and the way that the whole thing is run is based on the 19th century European model which I don't understand why but again I don't make those curriculums I don't you know I am doing my thing you know I'm doing my thing and I'm just looking um you know at, if I can make things better that is going to be part of my legacy, right? If I can open people's minds to, you know, like operate from the center of having confidence in what you're doing and you already chose to be an artist. And so what is it that is stopping you from, you know, putting all these things out there is your own self, right? It's like your own limiting beliefs that are keeping you from exploring from experimenting from trying things and if they don't work out well it's not a failure right you don't know you don't really know what are the what is it that that has brought to your life that can be a stepping stone for the next step yeah it's so easy to like immediate I don't know if you see something not take off or not succeed right away to immediately put it in the failure category when it may not be taking off right now, but it could be influencing the direction of your work, which could change everything for you. And like, I think so much of your book circles back on like just being open to to going wherever you feel like going with your art and like not letting yourself get hung up on various things because there's always going to be things that are trying to like hook your attention and hook your like confidence and worth and and if we can I don't know try to put blinders on and like keep focusing on the work and not let those things tear us away um at least like not tear away our confidence and our willing to keep our willingness to keep showing up to do the work I think that's very important and that's like it's not just of the it's not something that is particular to artists. I think that since we are so exposed to people's criticisms and to people's opinions and, you know, you become so vulnerable when you're showing up on social media. And again, it's like the same conversation we had at the very beginning is why people avoid those forums is because they don't want to be hurt and they want to protect themselves, right? And that's okay. But the world that we're living needs 
participation on those things is if you want to be seen. If you want to be completely anonymous and you want to be on the whole background of things and you want, you're lucky enough that you have somebody who can represent your work with you, you having to put it out there, fantastic. But that is, is really not the majority of people have that incredible opportunity to do things without having to show up and without having to be vulnerable and we have without having to be exposed and sometimes you're going to be misunderstood and only you are going to understand what you did and why you did it and why it looks the way it does and why things are the way you think they should be and you have to honor that for yourself sometimes you may get feedback and it might not be pretty and that is also information you have to acknowledge and I'm not saying embrace, but at least like what I, the case I just spoke about before of my friend who had the horrific review that was so mean. I think that, you know, when that happened, it was feedback for him. And I think he understood that he was paying attention to too many people who tried to make the work supposedly sophisticated and conceptual and difficult and fancy and this and that. And, uh, and it was not. Right. I mean, like he, it was not what he wanted to be and it was not who he was, but he followed that, you know, advice because he didn't know who he was and uh, and the feedback was not good. And so he took it. Right. So if you're always kind of like the rebel, oh, I, if the feedback is wrong, all of them are wrong. I mean, again, there are times where you're going to say, I really think that this is what I should be doing at this moment and people are not understanding it is fine but you don't really have to always you know go in that direction like the feedback that you're receiving is not very positive and then you're continuing sometimes it's a matter of persistence right sometimes sometimes it's a matter of keep trying sometimes it's a matter of like being in the right place at the right time and uh it's a lot about attitude it's a lot about attitude it's about openness it's about, I think that being an artist also by, by nature, you are generous, right? Because you want to show things to the world that the world will not find anywhere else, right? Because what you do is, is not going to be replicated by anybody else. And that's the uniqueness of an artist. And so you have to have that generosity in your spirit that you're willing to share. And that is a point of view that sometimes helps people move past their dramas and their shyness and their hang-ups and their fears is that you're doing it with a spirit of generosity you're sharing with the world what you know and what you do and you want them to get to know you and what you do through this particular way and that uh, you know things can take whatever turn because it's out in the world and that's okay and that is okay right it, and you accept that and and it's and you know, I, I wish I had every different variable panned out, but for the most part, coming up with all these ideas and unleashing the best, the best ones and, and putting it out in the world is inner work is it, you have to motivate yourself from within. That's also one of the things that is part of being creative is that no amount of money is ever going to satisfy you if you don't have it from within, right? If it's not something that you want to do and that you feel that it fulfills you. And, you know, artists have this thing that they have to be making things. It's like you can't stop making things, right? You have to be in front of a canvas or you have to have your hands in, in, in the, you know, in the mix of, you know, 
whatever it is, the, the ceramics and, you know, the powders and this and that and like, or you have to be sketching or you have to be designing something. And so means that there is energy inside of you that is propelling you forward. As I said before, action and these little steps all the time are the ones that are taking you to the place of conclusion or maybe it's not conclusion, but it's beginning, right? They might be steps that take you to a thing that you never thought about before. And that will open another path for you and another path for you. And routines are also super important, right? Like I talk about that all the time. And in, in the book is how having structured routines that you break willingly, right? That you are, you know, where you find your groove is, is like, oh, let me just have this routine and uh, see where it takes me and see, you know, like if I do this thing every day, when can I move far away from it? When I can improvise? When can I play with a medium? When can I incorporate something else? And that is you know, an incredible luxury that a lot of people don't necessarily have, that you can really break with everything that you've been doing to experiment with something else and see where it goes. And, and it might be a happy accident, right? Like, like many of the things that Jackson Pollock, you know, was doing were like, he just went with them and they were, he already knew so much about mediums and he already knows so much about painting and he already knew so much about canvases. And like, he's like, you know, what if I tuck this thing onto the floor and get crazy, you know? It might seem so easy right now, right? But at the time it was very, it was radical. It was pretty radical, especially looking at this from the inheritance of impressionism and cubism and then ending with this craziness of abstract expressionism was a big deal for these guys to be doing something so strange. I mean, yes, there were so many things that happened at the same time in the United States that brought this to the forefront. But I think that people who are like that, wanting to take chances are the ones that you know, have the happiest careers and the most successful ones. Yeah, you had so many reflections in the book through art history, and I found so many of them really comforting to recognize that like artists throughout history are facing so many of the same, like, if you get it down to the basic of the problem, they're dealing with the same things that we're dealing with now of like battling yourself in the studio and trying to get your work in front of people and like, trying to get comfortable with getting your work in front of people and so many other things. And I really appreciated uh, your perspective on that. And I think we had maybe talked about the art history part of it a little bit before we hit record. So I wanted to make sure to reference that because I thought that was such an important aspect of your book. Yeah, I mean, you know, what I love about history is that it's not that it repeats itself. It's just that since we're talking about habits and we're talking about attitudes and we're talking about things that are part of the human condition, if they worked 40 years ago or 600 years ago, right? Like if we think about Da Vinci and we think about Picasso and we think about Elon Musk or, you know, like, cause I love this, this people, right? Like who are always kind of inventing the future. If we think about those people, their attitudes are very, very similar. Yes, I mean, they spoke Latin and they lived in Florence and they did all the things, right? And they moved differently, but their the attitudes, thankfully, recorded history has given us all these clues about how people thought their worlds and how they behaved and how they, 
interacted and what were the things that they were doing every day. And so, you know, like everybody, oh, but I'm not Leonardo da Vinci, but I'm not him either. And neither are you, but you are you and you can do things that can help you elevate whatever you are doing, right? And they can make you a better person. And the other thing is that these guys were marketers too. You know what I mean? Like these guys were like kissing the Medici's, you know what I mean? Like their rings and their asses, you know what I mean? Like whatever it is that they had to kiss, they sort of did. I mean, Michelangelo was like, you know, a little bit of a rebel too. And he didn't want to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, but money talks, baby, you know, like they paid him amazingly well. And, uh, and he did it and he did it. And, um, it's not that he just ran away, right? And said, you know, catch me if you can, little Pope, because I'm not gonna do this. He actually did it, right? I mean, Picasso was a marketer. And, uh, and, and the best way that he found is that by being so prolific, you know, there was never a lack of supply to be everywhere that he wanted to be if he, if he would have wanted to be everywhere, which eventually he was, right? But uh, he is, it's not like, Imagine if Picasso would have been alive, he would have been one of the 10 richest men in the world right now because he would have had so many different ways of getting to people, right? And he would have invested his time and his money in so many different ways. And he was extraordinarily wealthy when he died. And there was a guy on social media, I hated him. And he's like, of course Picasso was wealthy because he was born so rich and he was an aristocrat. I was like, no, 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 no. Picasso wasn't rich when he was born, you know? Picasso was born out of a, you know, his, his dad was a, an art teacher and his mom was a housewife and he, has, he had his siblings, his two sisters, right? And the family had to move from town to town because they had no money, basically. So if that's rich, I don't really understand how that can be. Yeah, I mean, of course he was born in Europe, and, uh, but that doesn't mean that because he was born in Europe, he was rich, right? And I hate when people do that and say, well, but he had this and I didn't have it right? Because that is actually shooting yourself in the foot immediately. Like you're just taking yourself out of the, the possibilities of greatness just because you find ways to say, and I can't do this because that's not me, right? And uh, nothing is really written in stone. Nothing is like, oh, because you were not that, you cannot be this. Or because you were not right on the right side of the tracks. Or because I was born in the wrong side of the tracks. Oh, no, because I was this. Or because I was that, right? There is always this kind of excuse. And again, I think it has to do a lot with the way that art education has been given formally to people. That there is almost like this kind of like, and you have to suffer tremendously to actually see success in your life. I mean, I think suffering is part of growth and all humans, whether they're artists or not, they suffer. And, uh, you know, and, and again, but it, it doesn't have to be a badge of honor all the time, right? I think that if anything that I have learned from people who have seen tremendous suffering, like war and devastation, I wrote about somebody in the book who was a soldier for the Iraqi army and he was an artist, but he had to be drafted because when you live in Iraq, that's what you do. And that man saw everything. He saw people dismembered in front of, like for ages, right? And this guy is like amazing, he, you know, like, he just doesn't, I mean, he had to confront his demons, but he doesn't have to like utilize that to say that he didn't accomplish, right? He actually got that in his life 
and he used it to be a better person. And so it's, I think that by interpreting the world in, in, in light of what it is and applying that to yourself and seeing history and the moment, right, with, with curiosity and with possibility. Let's say you have a hard time being an optimist. But I think possibility, which is actually part of being a, an optimist, is like a lesser standard, right? Like being an optimist is like here and being an, uh, someone who like believes in possibility is a little lower. So just kind of like by moving yourself in that direction of thinking that there is possibility, that, that there is something that you only you can do and only you can express has, is already so powerful, right? because it means that nobody else has your point of view and there's got to be someone else in the world who has an interest in what you have to say. And I don't think that's so hard. I don't think that it's so hard to envision the possibility that you don't really have to please five million people. You can please one person. You can please two people. You can please yourself. You can say, you know what? I'm happy with this. I'm happy with what I accomplished today in the studio. And I think that this is good and I can turn off the lights and spend the rest of my night having a drink or like binging on Netflix, whatever, right? But I am happy with what I did today, right? I mean, that, that's like, I think that those are simple ways to keep the, the, you know, the wheel moving forward and not having this kind of like attitude that nothing ever goes my way or like, look at what's happening or, you know, why this person graduated with me and she's here and I'm not. And why is this person getting shows and I'm not, right? But I think having an attitude of celebration and, and uh, gratitude, because look, I mean, if you're listening to this, this podcast, you're better off than, you know, 90% of the world, right? And, and you have a smartphone and, you know, you speak English and look, I mean, it's, it's as simple as that, right? And you have a pair of earphones and this, um, you know, like, like think about the enormous amount of resources that are free almost like and available to you that were not really anything like, you know, 10 years ago, you would not have had this opportunity, you know, 10 years ago, you would not have been able to be discovered or like even, you know, like, like all the things that have happened. So there are avenues, there are paths, there are ways. I mean, the, the role of the artist really is to invent the future. And, and it's hard to invent the future when you are stuck in, in old ways, because that's, you don't really do it. I mean, the future obviously is rooted in the present, but I think that to be able to invent it, you've got to always see that possibility. Yeah, I love how you talk about creativity and uh, reframing it in your book and just break down all of these qualities and characteristics that can be implemented as small daily practices in, in artists, um, but in anyone's life to help navigate through a big change or to create an environment where you're thinking more expansively about the possibilities and it really feels like a, a blueprint for, without becoming prescriptive or formulaic around how we can start to think about 
um, the role of creativity in our own life, even as artists, which I, I think is so valuable. And I'm just excited that we've been able to talk to you today. And um, Amanda and I were both uh, sharing before well, we started talking with you, Maria, that we're just so grateful to have this book on our shelf to return to at different moments in our life. And I think this might have been before we hit record, but um, we were just talking about, you know, how, how timely this book feels, but how it's also something that, you know, I think we can return to in 10, 20 years and, you know, this will still feel relevant and something that we can apply to whatever stage of, of life we're in. Thank you. And I think that's the objective is that anybody really, and, and of course, artists are going to find nuggets and, and valuable things in those pages because it was, you know, written from that perspective of the artist and also the entrepreneur. But I think that the idea that I had when I wrote this book was to bring this manual in a way and reference book to people that they can keep going back to those pages and mining them. Because every time you read something new, it makes an impression and maybe things written there are not new, but what's new is my point of view and how I put these things together. And then you close that book and you come back to it later and you're going to find another thing because every time you open that book, you're going to be a different person too. Just you have to remember that. Like you change with time. Every time I open a book that I love in the future, I'm a different person and I get to see it with the eyes. You know, before being a mom, I, you know, I saw things in a way. After being a mom, I saw things in a different way. Like, you know, now I have you know, teenagers, right? Like it's a, it's a different thing than the, when they were babies. And so all those things impact the way you see your life, the way you understand your place in time, right? Your mission, the things that you are willing to give from your heart to, to build your legacy, to benefit others. And, you know, I mean, I really wrote this book, not for me. I wrote it for people, right? I, re I wrote it for others for, you know, to to give them something that is both rooted in history and is also has a lot of important data about why things are the, the things that can be measured in science through research. You know, I also incorporated those for the people who like to like measure things and they like to have, you know, answers to their questions. And so I'm sure in the future there will be more studies about many of these things because, you know, we're becoming better and better at measuring things. And not everything, obviously, is uh, part of the, the world of science and researchers and psychologists. But I think that, I think, if, if anything, what I have learned of all these years of working with artists is that that success is not by chance that it is something that you work at it, that you work at it every day, and that you get better and better and better with time, both the craft of being an artist and also at how you present yourself in the world and how you take chances every day, whether it is picking up the phone and, and you know calling that person that you are afraid of reaching out to, or that chance might be just you know, taking a move or, you know, doing something strange that you surprise yourself. I mean, think about how many times you may have surprised yourself in the past where you wanted to do something that you didn't know how it was going to pan out. And it was like a wonderful thing. 
And uh, as again, like the point of getting older really is getting more experience, but also as you get older, you start getting complacent and not necessarily loving the word risk because you already found a formula that works until it doesn't work. And so that's the problem, right? Like formulas have an expiration date for the most part. And, and you know, there's nothing to feel ashamed of if you found a formula, but know that the world is very keen on seeing what is going to come out of like the no formula part, right? Like what if like you actually throw seven different things out there that we haven't seen that are going to surprise you and delight you too. And that's the cool thing. It's not just for the world, it's for you. Oh, yes. Thank you so much, Maria. This has been such a wonderful conversation. And I feel like we could just keep talking with you for hours. There's so much that's in your book and in your story that, I mean, I I hope everybody reads the book after this conversation. (laughs) That's the main takeaway. But um, it's just been really great to get to hear in your own words more of uh, what motivated this and just how you think about work and life and creativity um, based on your own wealth of experience. So thank you again for taking the time. Thank you both for your generosity and this very fun, interesting conversation. And thank you for everybody who listened up until now. I think it's uh, great. You guys are actually there. (laughs) After all this time. Is anybody out there? No, thank you. Thank you. And uh, consider yourselves very lucky and privileged if you are artists, because it really, I also think is the profession of the future. I think that companies are going to start calling artists to sit on their boards because you guys see things differently. I think that governments at some point are also going to start bringing artists to help them with decision making and policies and things like that, because it's it's very is different and we do need this different points of view for progress it's very important Mm -hmm. yeah amen yeah thank you so much and before we go where can listeners find you online find your work find your book yes so the book is how creativity rules the world it's published by harper collins and it's everywhere so amazon barson noble bookshop your independent bookstores um target walmart you name it and if people want to go and take a look at my website, it's mariabrito.com, B-R-I-T-O.com. And that will have a lot of information, including social media handles. And um, my newsletter comes every Tuesday. It's called The Groove. And uh, form, there is a form um, also that people can fill out if they want to send me an email. So... I'm, I'm easy to find because if you go to that website, everything is there. And uh, yeah, the book, How Creativity Rules the World, it's out in the world. Go get it. <laughs> yeah, and we highly recommend it. We loved reading it and we look forward to rereading it over the years. And we'll include links to everything in our bio so that listeners can just click and buy it right away. Fantastic. Thank you so much again, both of you, for your time. I really appreciate it. I love this. And, um, you know, I hope your creativity rules the world. Oh, thank you. And same to you. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. 
Don't forget, if you're a fan of the podcast, please leave us a rating and review, submit to our listener spotlight, and if you want to support the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation, head over to our website, beyondthe.studio. 